What is the perfect church? What does a perfect church look like? Well, I think we see one aspect, one glimpse of the perfect church when we turn to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. There we see John sees the vision of four living creatures and 24 elders worship the Lamb and they say, By your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that's one aspect of the church perfected we see in heaven, in God's kingdom with Jesus as our king. We see that everything that divides people on earth disappear. Cultural background, different languages, habits, traditions, even political allegiance. They all disappear because those things will no longer separate God's people because our union with Christ is actually a bond that is thicker even than blood. Our common need for forgiveness, the fact that we have one Savior, the fact that we have been united to Jesus, not different ways, but through faith in Him, that creates amongst God's people a powerful, unbreakable bond that is greater and stronger than any other bonds we have known on earth. And so in heaven, one of the aspects, one of the realities of a perfected church is the gathering of people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And in Acts chapter 2, we see how that begins to be fulfilled. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the believers, and all the believers began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so people from every nation and language, they marveled. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And so at Pentecost, God began to gather into His church people from every uh, tribe, language, and peoples. And that is the beginning, the first steps of the church's growth toward perfection. And Acts chapter 2, we see a foretaste of the perfected church. However, there is some gap between the birth and perfection. And we see some significant challenges facing the early church. And so that is the first thing uh, we note this morning, the challenge of the earth, um, early church. Now you remember, uh, after Peter's Pentecost sermon, we read that there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's chapter 2, verse 41. And then we continue to read in verse 42 how the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And in chapter 2, verse 47, as a result of that, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then in chapter 3, Peter healed the man who was born lame, and he bore witness to Jesus in whose name the lame man was healed. And in chapter 4, verse 4, we read, Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And then in chapter 5, verse 14, we saw how the Spirit-empowered ministry of healing the sick, which 
attested to the authenticity, the genuineness of the teachings of the apostles led to more than ever believers were being added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. That is to say, by the time we come to Acts chapter 6, the church is numbering in thousands. It was a rapid and explosive growth. And perhaps because of that, this explosive growth created practical challenges. You know, all these people, they need, and many of them have, who had traveled to Jerusalem from surrounding regions to celebrate Passover and Pentecost, who, who were drawn to the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God, who could not simply return home. You know, how could you? All of your life's important questions were just answered. You finally found out what your purpose on earth is. How can you leave that behind and go home? All these believers stayed around to learn and to become a part of the church, and that created huge practical challenges. You needed to house them. You needed to feed them. You needed to take care of them. And so we saw in chapter 4, verse 45, how the Holy Spirit powerfully moved some believers Uh, Believers who had the means and the wherewithal, who were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any have need. Uh, By the way, we saw and we noted when we were in the passage that this was not some um, early call to what we might consider socialism. And if everyone was obligated to sell everything they had, then there would be no beauty or generosity in their giving if they were obligated to do it. But the giving was generous, was full of love and faith precisely because they were not required to. But the Spirit moved in their hearts and the people who had the means were only too happy to do it. And so they sold what they could to support this enormous pragmatic needs that were created by this explosive growth of the church. And then we saw again in chapter 4, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any hath need. And so that pattern continued. People who had the means in whose heart the Spirit moved. Uh, they gave willingly. They laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet so to meet the needs of God's people. However, we see that problems soon emerged. And so we read in this chapter, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. You remember how the Jewish people were taken as captives into Assyria and Babylon. Uh, And some of those people returned back to Israel. Many remained outside of Israel. And so by first century, what we have is a lot of Jewish people that are scattered along the the coast of Mediterranean Ocean and uh, in the surrounding regions and countries. These are Jews uh, by heritage and by birth, but who are born in these foreign lands. 
They still held on to the faith of their fathers, but they were raised in foreign lands. Many of them spoke Greek as their first and native language, and they had adopted the customs of the foreign countries. These are called Hellenists. On the other hand, they are the Hebrews. These are the Jews. These are the Palestinian Jews, uh, people who spoke Aramaic. Aramaic is a language that is very closely related to the, the Hebrew language. And these are the people who had preserved the traditions, the traditions of the Jewish nation. And in the early church, there were believers both from the Hellenist background and the Hebrew background. And it seems as though what happened was that because of this explosive growth of the church in that number by this time into the thousands, when people sold their lands and fields and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet, they could not possibly, the 12 men, they could not possibly themselves personally meet the needs of these thousands of people. And it seems as though what happened is that they enlisted the help of the Hebrews, the Palestinian Jews who had become believers. And of course, these were uh, no doubt some of their personal friends, people they were familiar with because the apostles, of course, were themselves Palestinian Jews. And so they turned to the people they knew best, people who, uh, who share their history, their culture, in order to help them distribute uh, the funds to meet the needs of this growing church. But the Hebrews, they showed favoritism. They showed favoritism towards their own kind and neglected to provide for the widows of the Hellenist background. And what is really sad here is that we realize that this wasn't simply the case of few people falling through the cracks due to the sheer size of the problem. The complaints come from the Hellenist widows. So it was a particular types of groups of people who were intentionally neglected and were not provided for. So that is the challenge facing the early church. What then is the solution? That's our second focus this morning. And we see that the apostles responded with compassion and wisdom. And it's really wonderful to see here that the apostles did not dismiss the complaint and they did not take offense to it as a criticism of their leadership. They were humble. And I think that is a mark of good, caring leaders when they are criticized. People who are concerned about their position, they take offense as a criticism of their personal beings. But these apostles, they did not dismiss the need or the complaint and they did not take it as an offense or criticism of their leadership. They acknowledged the need, and they be, uh, set out to redress the failings. And interestingly, they knew that they were not the right people for the task. The apostles, they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve 
tables. Now, what are they saying here? They are certainly not saying, we're too good to care about these menial tasks. That's not what they're saying. Remember what's led up to this point. The Jewish authorities threatened them to be silent and to teach no longer in the name of Jesus. And the apostles boldly, courageously refused and ignored and dismissed the threats and the warning of the Jewish authorities. And they kept on teaching and preaching in the name of the Lord Jesus. And now, this very urgent and critical need would also have the same effect if the apostles were distracted and were pulled into this problem. And just as Satan was behind the Jewish authorities' threat to silence and stop the teaching, so Satan was behind the sin of prejudice. Satan was behind the sin of showing favoritism to silence God's word. That is why the apostles responded, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And the apostles' solution challenges us in many different ways. The very first way it challenges us it helps us to realize that sometimes we over-spiritualize. What do we mean by that? We, we tend to think that teaching the Bible, preaching the Bible, teaching theology, that's the real spiritual ministry. And we tend to think that meeting practical needs, working in the kitchen, setting the table, clearing the table afterwards. We tend to think, think that these uh, practical needs uh, is best left to less gifted and less important people. That's what I mean when I say we tend to over-spiritualize. But notice we see the dignity to serve tables first in the qualifications necessary in order to serve at the tables. The apostles said, Therefore, brothers, pick up from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, there are several reasons why the apostles said that. Uh, no doubt because they remembered uh, from their own experience what we read in John chapter 12, verse 6. We read that Judas... That Judas who betrayed Jesus. Judas, having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now the apostles were looking for people to take the proceeds that were laid at their feet, be responsible for the distribution of this great amount, and they would not simply entrust this important task to anyone. They would entrust it to men who are full of the spirit and wisdom. Not only so, caring for widows is important work. Tending to the need of neglected people is too important to be left to less qualified people. Do you remember what James 1.27 says? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So when the New Testament talks about true faith bearing fruit, one of the most tangible ways that faith is expressed is caring for those that are in need, the neglected, the poor. And because this was so important to the apostles, they could not entrust this work to anyone who was less qualified than men who were full of the Spirit and who were wise and who were full of integrity. And so that's what I mean when I say we tend to over-spiritualize. We tend to think preachers are doing the real spiritual work. And we tend to think people who work in the kitchen, who are meeting practical needs, you know, they're just not very special. That's why they're doing that. Uh, By no means. By no means. And we also see that in the way that the apostles describe this ministry. In chapter 6, verse 2, the apostles say, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The Greek word for to serve here is diakonein. And it's the word from which we get the word deacon. So what the apostles are saying, if I can put it this way, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to be deacons of the table. But then they go to say in chapter 6 verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the Greek word behind the ministry of the word is the exact same word, diakonein. Again, from which we get the word deacon. So what the apostles are saying is this. It's not right for us to stop preaching the word in order to be deacons of the table. But we will continue to be the deacons of the word. In other words, the apostles describe both kinds of ministry exactly the same way. And there is honor and dignity. It's just the preachers. It's not not just the theologians with PhDs who are really doing the real spiritual work. You know, Rick would never say this himself, but you know, our communion table, it's been wobbly. So he went and fixed it. That was a literal service of the table. That's a profound theological statement. And I hope some of you younger people recognize that. That's spiritual work. And there is dignity and there is honor. And so what the apostles are saying is this. Some people, according to God's calling and gift engage in the service of God's word as deacons of God's word. Other people, also by the same God's calling and gift, engage in the service of the table as deacons of the table. They are equally honorable and equally important. And so that was the apostle's solution. And from this, uh, we conclude by drawing some lessons The believers saw the wisdom of the apostles' counsel, and they chose seven men. Uh, Interestingly, they are all Greek names. And that likely indicates that they were all Hellenists. And Nicolaus, the last one mentioned, was even a proselyte of Antioch. A proselyte is someone 
who is a Gentile by birth, but who is converted to the Jewish faith, and he had then embraced the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see here that the gathered believers, once they recognized the issue, they did not try to deny it, they did not try to downplay it, but they selected seven men with the best spiritual qualification who best understood and who are most sensitive to the need of the moment. And this demonstrated their commitment to care for the poor, to meet the needs of the Hellenist widows. And I think we see here, even in this early stage of the church, we see remarkable wisdom and humility to respond to criticism and complaint in a wise and a godly way and to place in the position uh, those that were most qualified, best qualified and who are most sensitive to the need of the moment. And Luke adds here that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The high priests of the day, they were the Sadducees, and they were very wealthy because they controlled the very lucrative business of changing money and selling the animals in the temple. But the ordinary rank-and-file priests tend to be very poor. And the ordinary rank-and-file priests, you know, the Old Testament scripture commands the community to support the priests and their livelihood, but the priests were, to be frank, they were often neglected. And so the priests, the ordinary low-ranking priests tend to be very poor. And I think what they saw was the beauty of God's compassion coming alive in the body of Christ as the believers care for the poor. And I wonder, too, these priests knew well how the Old Testament had many commandments, many laws commanding God's people to care for the poor. But, you know, it's one thing to have law, and it's another thing to have people follow it. And so even though the Old Testament speaks often about the duty and the obligation to care for the poor, it was not often, in fact, done. And I think these priests, not only did they see in the body of Christ God's grace coming alive, they also saw the gospel accomplishing what the law could never accomplish. The gospel moved the hearts of God's people and they were drawn into the Lord Jesus. And I wonder if there is some lesson we can learn here. Um, word ministry and deed ministry go hand in hand. I think some people have the tendency to merely do and focus on word ministry and neglect the deed ministry, while others, they only care about the deed ministry and word ministries neglected. They have to happen together. And the ministry of God's kingdom requires the cooperative labor of the whole body. And so the apostles did not try to do everything themselves. 
They devoted themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so they knew that God gave them neither blessing nor permission to stray from their calling, no matter how urgent and righteous that need was. You know, the need was real. It was urgent, and it was a righteous demand. And yet the apostles knew that they could not be pulled away into it, no matter how urgent the issue was. And the apostles knew that their calling from the Lord was to labor in prayer and in the word of God. And so they relied on others in the body of Christ to come alongside them to labor together. And what's really notable is that they relinquished control over money. Who does that? Not if you are interested in holding on to your power to control people. But they relinquish the control over the money to wise and trustworthy colleagues. And the seven men in turn took upon themselves this duty uh, to care for the neglected and the poor. And with their help, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. The body of Christ, the work of the church is a, is a cooperative endeavor. We do it together. We have different callings. We have different gifts. They are all important. And we work together for the common good of the Lord and his church. And finally, Christian ministry is all of service. Um, there is some discussion about whether these seven men are actually the deacons because the word deacon is actually never used in this passage. Just the verb form to, de- to deacon is used. They were deaconing. They were serving. And I am with those who see in here, in this passage, even though they are not explicitly called deacons, these men are in fact called into the office of deacons. And their task and responsibility have certainly become the pattern after which the ministry of the deacons are shaped in the later books of the New Testament. And I think we see here that Christian ministry is all of deaconing. It's all of service. Regardless of what your particular task is, we are all servants. How can it not be? Mark 10.45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, but to deacon. Same word. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the great deacon. He is the one who humbly, wisely, faithfully, cares for the needy and the poor with sympathy, with understanding. And he came to serve. And he came to serve those who are spiritually poor. And he calls his people to care for those who are physically in need. And that is why all of Christian ministry is a call to service. 
we do not seek to be served, but we seek to serve. We do not seek to receive, we seek to give. For of course, when we do that, we are just and only following the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called your people as one body and you patiently bear with the failings of your people. And you have given us your wisdom, you have given us your word and given us your spirit that we may act wisely and serve you with distinction. And I pray, O Lord, that each and every one of us may take up this holy calling to be your servants. Whatever our particular task may be, whatever our gifts may be, we pray that you would make us servants to care for those that are in need, spiritually, pragmatically. May we people of great compassion, sympathy, and wisdom. And so may we May we truly be the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.